Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to My Millennial Money Express. I'm Glenn James and I'm with Tanya Hester. Welcome, Tanya, to the show. Thank you so much. We are live from the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel in DTLA and we've just completed the Podcast Movement Evolutions Conference. I feel very evolved. Oh, so evolved. I feel I feel so woke after that conference. I've like made it. So you've got a podcast called Fairer Sense, The Fairer Sense. Mm-hmm. And you're out there, you're killing it. And you're actually you've achieved fire status. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, tell us about it. How did you do it? What does it mean for you? How old are you? What's your social security <laughs> number? <laughs> um, so, for your listeners who don't know, FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Uh, in fact, I wrote a book that has Retire Early in the subtitle. It's called Work Optional Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way. And it's interesting because... When people hear the word retirement, and especially early retirement, they get very hung up on what that means. And a lot of folks think that means you are allowed to do two things. You are allowed to golf, and you are allowed to sit in a chair and drink a drink with an umbrella in it. Mm. Uh, And I strongly disagree with that. I think that really the goal of a work-optional life, which I think is a better term, honestly, than FIRE, is that you are able to choose how you want to spend your time. And that encompasses everything. Uh, For me, I am an achiever. I always have been. I love doing things. I can't imagine doing nothing. That sounds terrible. And so I still do a lot of stuff that looks like work, but it's all for me. It's my passion project. And the great thing is, honestly, most of them don't make any money. And that's great. Uh, Where in other stages of life, I would have been very concerned about that. So like spending huge time on my podcast or my blog or writing a book, would not have been financially tenable earlier in life when I needed to earn an income. Uh, But it's a real privilege now to get to spend time on stuff that I care about. And I'm writing a second book uh, that is even more meaningful to me. And so, yeah, it's really for me just like I get to control my life and I feel like pretty much the luckiest person who's ever lived. Yeah. So you're a capitalist, um, spoiled brat Mm -hmm. type of uh, person uh, (laughs) with so much privilege oozing (laughs) off you. It's ridiculous. Uh, so how did you get to that fire status? Like, cause people want to know, like, what did you do? Like, did you live on like noodles for 10 years and live under a bridge? Like, yeah, I get, I get really upset about that. Cause I'll tell you what I think about the fire movement once we're finished talking about it. I almost want to hear your answer first. Really? Yeah. I think it's rubbish. Mm-hmm. I mean, this whole thing in society Particularly in Australia, it's like, oh, my financial goal is to retire by age 40. And it's like, well, if you're working, like the the fire movement is you've got to be hella frugal and live on, I'll just make a number up, like 40 grand a year or whatever, okay? To get to this line, so you've accrued enough wealth to draw down 40 grand a year, because that's what the fire movement is, right? You accrue enough wealth to invest 
that will replace your income. So if you've lived off 40 grand a year. That's the broad principle. Yeah. We don't have to be anchored to that number. Yeah. Whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. So that amount, But because I'm just talking most working class people who want to achieve fire, they're living off 40, 50 grand a year, whatever that is, right? I actually disagree with that, but we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Um, or whatever the number is. It doesn't need to be a number. But it's this, I'm working, I'm working, I hate my job, I'm being frugal. Then I'll get to this line in the sand where I can retire and then do my encore career or whatever. It's like, well, just do what you love now. Like, get out of debt so you don't have those things. Like, if you want to, like, if you hate your job, like, Mondays don't suck. Your life sucks. And I think it's this... And this is coming from someone who I'm not a tight ass, I'm not cheap, I'm not frugal, mm-hmm. uh, I buy quality, I like value, I can't save money so I invest it because if I save it, I spend it. So, I like to think you've just got to, I call it loot, you've got to live life on your own terms and I think you can do that if you work in a government job because you're not there because you have to be there. You're there because I like this job or I do it because I've set my life up where I can work three or four days a week on the casual pool and we have a long weekend. Mm-hmm. So, this whole fire movement thing, yeah, I think the the retire early is the fallacy. I think the financial independence and I'm not linked to any type of societal norms in terms of a nine to five role because I've been living life on my own terms since I was 25 years old. Mm-hmm. And to the problem now, it's almost too crazy. Like, I've got no boundaries mm-hmm. and I need... Like, my hobby was podcasting when I had my financial planning business, but now my hobby is now my full-time thing, so I need another hobby. But my personality is I'll turn it into a business. Like, so that's my kind of struggle. And I guess Sermon on the Mount is why I have this problem of retire early because as you said retirement shouldn't be this line in the sand I drop all tools I drop everything and I sit on a freaking beach and rot my brain out because if that's your goal and you want to sit there and do nothing for the next 40 years you're broken yeah and so okay I'm going to disagree with you on a whole bunch of stuff there love it um, I, I agree fundamentally with the idea that we should be trying to live the way that we wish to as soon as possible. I see a lot of people approach early retirement as my life is terrible now. I hate work. So I'm going to do this thing and then life will be perfect. Neither of those things is true. Your life is not going to be perfect when you're early retired. It's still your life. You still have your own baggage. In fact, it's actually a little bit harder to escape some of your baggage when you're early retired because you have no distractions. Uh, so you have to deal. Can I swear on your show? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like you have to deal with your own shit, you know, and in a different way. So an interesting thing is like you talked about living, I'm going to lose all these points, but I'm going to try to get them out here. Yeah. Um, the living on your own terms thing is great, but you talked about monetizing everything that you do. Like, But that's personality play. It is, but you also need an income, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, there's there you don't actually know the interplay of that because you haven't been able to separate them. And it's totally fair if that's your personality, but you might actually find someday if you have no need for income that it's a relief not to need that. Like for me, I love that. I mean, my podcast makes money, but I don't need it to. Mostly I do that for my co-host who is not financially independent. But uh, there is something beautiful about being able to write a blog where I make literally zero dollars. In fact, I make negative with the expenses. Um, That feels 
great to me. And that feels like my own terms. Another point that I think is really important, this is more applicable to people in the States, but in the US, our healthcare system is such a disaster and healthcare is so expensive and so tied to work that it's not really very doable for a lot of people to go out on their own unless, you know, where you see that happening is in a marriage where one partner has a good job they don't mind doing and has good insurance that often frees the other up to do more. Um, so that makes, that's an added barrier in the States to, to doing what you did and, you know, at 25 striking out on your own. But the main thing that I have, that I take issue with is the way that the media often portrays fire is it has this idea that people are spending 25, 30, even $40,000 a year living on rice and beans, living this very meager existence. And the truth is, I don't know anyone in the fire community, and I've met thousands of people at this point, I don't know anyone who lives like that. Almost everybody lives a much more normal-looking life. It's more about cutting out the spending that doesn't have meaning for you and still spending on the rest. So, like, I spend a fortune on travel because I love that. I don't think there's any aspect of my life where you would see it and say, that looks like you're making yourself miserable or sometimes people will call it like poverty by choice. I'm like, there is no part of my life that's like that, but it's very clickbaity to write a story. That's like, look at these people and the crazy things they've done to save money and look at how they, you know, eat nothing but rice and beans or ramen noodles. I just don't actually think that's the reality. That's like the portrayal, but not the truth. Uh, The truth is I think you have people who are just saying, how can I not be in a track where I'm forced to work forever Um, and like for us, my husband, Mark and I, we see it as not, I hate work. We, I loved my job. Actually. I just knew that it took such a toll. It was very high pressure, a ton of travel, a ton of hours. I knew that I couldn't do that forever uh, without paying a serious toll. And so it was, I want that to be one chapter of my life and I want my life to have many chapters. If we go back to the point where it's like, okay, let's use 80 K or hundred K. It was like someone lives on hundred grand a year. Mm -hmm. It's I'm just thinking from a maths point of view and investment returns point of view to accrue that wealth, you've got to be living on almost nothing if you want to be fire sooner than later. I think the truth is a lot of people who've achieved like early retirement earn. it's thing. True, it is. But I think if you earn more, it's easier to save more. That's very simple. And yeah. I think that the vast majority of people who've achieved it thus far earned a lot of money. Hmm. I mean, I could like... Yeah, I could tomorrow stop doing any income generating things and not need to earn money. Mm-hmm. I do it because I like well it. Well done. So, I, and that's what I mean. Like, for those listening, you do you. I don't mind. This is just my opinion. Like, I'm not married to anyone else's view on money. Mm-hmm. I'm just facilitating this conversation. Mm-hmm. But I just think my encouragement is don't aim for this line in the sand where then you do nothing. I will, I will partially agree with that in the sense that I do think, well, it's a little bit hard because I, I think we have a bit of a, a bias in the community where the people who we hear from are those who write blogs or do podcasts or write books. And I think that there is something maybe different about those of us who think that others care what we have to say mm. <laughs> and take the time to write. Of those folks, every single one I know is doing something in retirement that generates an income. And so I think in my case, we definitely oversaved because we saved enough to not need to ever work again. And, and I yet- think that's my main point. It's like you, to get f- to fire, they say, no, I don't want to 
work on the, uh, I don't want to work in my day job. I just want to do my side hustle and create money. I'm like, well, bloody just start it now. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And for those folks, I agree. I do think there are a lot though who actually literally never work again. Yeah. They're just not the ones who we're hearing from because they don't blog or podcast about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. like for, I think it's, it's, it's to me very much just know yourself. Like totally. I, if I could go back, I would say, you know, I'm never going to just sit still and not do anything that could ever earn money. But I also am more financially conservative and have a lot more anxiety about that. And particularly given healthcare in the U S and I have a genetic condition. My husband has a chronic health condition. Like for us having a bigger safety net for that feels really critical and essential. And so, yeah, like probably by any measure we oversaved, but that lets me sleep at night and that makes it worth it. Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing is, you know, just make your own movement. Just mm-hmm. do what works for you. I mean, I'm just playing to my strengths. And my strengths are if I'm doing what I like and I've got passion, it will be linked to generating income because it's a game and it's fun. Mm-hmm. Like, that's yeah, all it is. Whereas I, mean, I hate monetizing my passions. It yeah. takes the fun out of it for me. Well, it makes it fun for me. Exactly. That's the crazy thing, right? Right. So, just like know yourself and your own tendencies. I think especially now with the hustle culture we've got that millennials and Gen Z in particular feel, I think there is a lot of pressure to monetize everything you spend time on. And I think it's a really lovely thing to not put that pressure on yourself. But if, if you're like, like Glenn and you like that, you want to monetize things. Great. Know that I, I talk in the book a lot about how you can do different models like semi-retirement or taking a career intermission so that if, for example, you just want to take a year off or you want to take a few years off while your kids are young, perhaps, or you want to be able to travel and do some things, or you want to be able to work three months out of the year. So you're semi-retired that you've got your basics covered and you've got your later retirement years covered, but then you recognize, yeah, I'm still going to earn money. Yeah. And I think that's why I've so passionately don't like the words fire. I'm okay with the movement, (laughs) but it's like, (laughs) and that's why I'm like, I'm like loot life on your own terms because it's your life and it's your terms. It's so funny though, because like we get very hung up on retirement when retirement as a concept is less than a hundred years old in terms of a widespread thing that people do. Uh, It's a very new thing, but we act like it's carved in stone when really to me, it's more like we should be redefining retirement for everyone of all ages. And, And this is what like I'm writing on it at the moment. So we've been brought up from, and it's an interesting place in humanity, for example, like our parents and more so our grandparents, like they were leaving home at age 16 and 17, working one job until age 65, then stopping and dying. Yeah. Like if they even made it to 65. Exactly. Yeah. So what's happened is society has moved 10 years at the moment. So people are 30 years old, staying at home with mummy and daddy But at age 65 in financial planning world, we're calling that the lifestyle years. So 65 to 75, right? So everything's moved 10 years. So in this culture, if you're a a millennial or you're a Gen Z or Z, whatever it is Mm -hmm. in Australia or America, (laughs) I don't even know anymore. It's Jay-Z in America, isn't it? Uh, Gen Z, yeah. No, Jay-Z, the rapper. Oh, Jay-Z, yeah. Yeah. The rapper. We call him Jay-Z in Australia, but we should be calling him Jay-Z. But anyway... um, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Just say, hey, we're going to use the logic. It's got to apply. run it by Beyonce. Yeah. So we can't be influenced in this generation by a generation that is actually different. 
Yeah. And even among boomers, a third of people 65 to 75 currently work. And so the idea that retirement means no work, no contributions to society, that's just not even factually accurate, including people who are probably, you know, living a very different life than, yeah, as you said, millennials and Gen Z will. I tried. Look at me. Yeah. So how old are you? I'm 40. Yeah. And how old's uh, Mr. Hester? Uh, No, he has a different last name. Mark Mark Bungie is my husband. He uh, is 43 currently. We retired when I was 38 and he was 41. Yeah. So you're new to this game. New-ish, although what's so interesting is how much time has slowed down since we retired. Last year was the longest feeling year of my life, which feels like such a massive privilege because it feels like as you get older, time speeds up more Mm. and more. It's really slowed down for us. So the last two and a half years that we've been retired feel like, I don't know, six or seven years. Yeah. What's he do of a day now? Oh, so I am the productive one. He is like basically a self-funded ski bum now. Uh, He does a lot of volunteering also. He is president of a local nonprofit in our area, but uh, he's, yeah, right now as we speak, he's skiing, he'll be mountain biking all summer long. And I think that's important. Like, it's not as if he's just retired. He's still got that community engagement Mm -hmm. and adding value. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because, again, if he retired and just was by himself as a lone wolf, like that's, I don't know, it might not be good mentally for some people. Uh, Oh, no, I I could not agree more. I talk about this a lot in the book because I think it's hugely overlooked that people don't plan enough for the community engagement and the sense of belonging, Mm. where even if you hate your job, your job still gives you something. It still gives you a sense of adding value, even if it doesn't feel like it's for a greater good. You're still doing something. You're still part of a group. It's purpose. You've got to have purpose in your life. You have to have purpose, but it has to be in a social context. People talk a lot about why we're doing this or what's your purpose, but they don't talk about the social part, but we know that the people who are the most socially connected live the longest. They have the most healthy years. I mean, this stuff matters. And unlikely to get dementia. Yes. I mean, being socially connected has so many benefits. I'm sure there are some we just don't even know about yet that Mm. we'll keep finding out, but people need to plan that. You need to think about, okay, when I don't have an office to go to anymore every day and my friends are all at work when I want to hang out, how am I going to feel like I'm a part of something? So when you uh, achieved your retirement, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you accrued enough wealth. So if you did not want to generate income ever again, everything was going to be fine. Yep. So you're obviously, you're currently drawing down from your investments. Yep. So you're primarily invested in what? We are primarily index fund investors. Uh, I assume your listeners know all about that. Uh, So we're about 70-30 stocks to bonds. We also have about a three-year cash cushion. Why would you be in bonds? Uh, Primarily, well, so I should say, we have a two-tier setup. So we we saved for early retirement, which we count until age 59 and a half. Yeah, sure. As one thing. Outside retirement, yeah. Yep. And then we have our traditional retirement. So traditional retirement is almost totally stock. Do you still cap that out every year from your money outside retirement? What do you mean by cap that out? So is, uh, it might even be different. So in Australia, you can put money in a retirement account with post-tax dollars and then it grows tax-free. Oh, that's like a Roth in the US. Yeah, like once you're over age 60. Um, Do you do any strategy like that? Not really. We do a tiny, tiny bit just to give ourselves some flexibility, but we don't spend that. Um, But for the most part, the stuff for later, for true retirement, we leave alone. 
And then, so that is almost entirely stock because it's got a really long time to grow yes. and we can weather the fluctuations in yeah. that. The funds for our early retirement, that's where we're 70, 30 because we could have an extended down market like the Great Recession mm. again, and we need some assets to draw on. Are you um, drawing just on distributions from the funds like dividends or distribution? Are you eating capital as well? So we're, when we were saving, we were reinvesting all our dividends. Yep. We stopped doing that at retirement because yep. since we pay tax on them, we need that to be cash flow. Yep. I don't want to pay tax on money that we can't spend. Yep. Uh, so we do take those out and then we additionally sell shares. Given where the markets have been, we've been exclusively selling stock index fund shares, yeah. but obviously that could shift. Do you have one indexed fund that is the 70-30 blend, or do you build your own uh, portfolio with a variety of different index funds so you can sell parcels? We have a variety of different. We're primarily total market um, investors, but we do have some S&P, we have some international and emerging, we have some you know small and large cap, but those are relatively small allocations. I've, I've, I've got this fund that I've got at the moment. It's a uh, AI and um, robotics index fund mm. in Japan. Mm. And it's... Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. We're focusing on trying to shift. So our biggest tax thing that we're doing is we're shifting our assets into ESG, environmental social governance, yep. uh, which are more socially responsible. There have recently, just in the last year or two, uh, become better options in the US because in the past you paid a big premium you would take much lower returns much higher fees but there are some newer ones that are pretty close to mm. other index funds and are finally to me acceptable and and actually exclude the bad guys uh, for a long time they'd be you know an, a socially responsible fund that included tobacco and guns and it's like in what world does that make sense yeah that aside, uh, we're we're currently trying to do conversions of a little bit each year, so that we're you know kind of looking at what's our tax cap. We don't want to get too many capital gains or too many taxable events, but we're trying to slowly migrate over there. So, with your um, portfolio, and like you're obviously earning an income, okay? Mm -hmm. So that income that you're earning, and I guess this was my question around the tax planning. Like, if you are starting to earn an income and you've obviously would have to declare income from distributions or dividends from the portfolios mm -hmm. would then you go well we need to then maybe put a couple of grand a year whatever that looks like into the Roth type thing Yes. So, so we, do you have year on year kind of tax strategy with shuffling money like that? We do. And it, it, particularly because in the US, we also have the added dimension of healthcare. And depending on your income, that dictates how much your healthcare costs. And so we do a lot of our movements right at the end of the year. Once we know what our dividends total, we know if we've earned anything additional. So I earn little bits here and there from like speaking or podcast or, uh, you know, the first year of retirement, I earned some money for my book. And so actually the first year we did put some money into a traditional IRA to reduce our taxes mm. a little bit uh, and to help with healthcare. And so now we, we do a lot of rejiggering right at the end of the year, basically. So the portfolio that's outside of retirement, is that primarily in your name as the younger spouse or do you have it split ownership 50-50? How is that set up? Uh, we are both on the account, so it's a joint account. We live in a community property state, uh, California, and right. so we have really no choice about that. It's considered to be joint tenants with rights of survivorship. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sweet. <laughs> and <laughs> what happens if we get divorced? That's an often overlooked topic, though, in the fire world. In Australia, like you actually can't hide any money. Like family law pieces any corporate veil. 
Like it's just... Technically, in most states in the U.S., that is legally the case. It does not mean people don't try or that they don't get away with it. And I guess in Australia, yeah, that's true. With the um, retirement account, if you go bankrupt, your retirement savings are um, shielded from that. There is some shielding in the U.S. of retirement savings, if you, but you, there are rules. So, like, if you have an employer plan, which is what we call 401k, yep. you roll that over into a self-directed individual retirement account, IRA. If you add money to it, it actually ceases to be an employer plan, and then it loses that protection. But if you roll it over and leave it alone, and if you add money, you add it to a different account, uh, then it retains that protection. What's the most luxurious thing that you've purchased for yourself <laughs> in the last couple of years? And how much was it? Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, I have a weakness for fountain pens. Right. None of them are super expensive. It's more just that I still buy them when they are not essential. I, I think probably the answer is just travel. Uh, we, the first year, went to Taiwan, Mexico, and France. We spent a month in France. Uh, pr primarily in the south, like Provence. It was wonderful. Uh, we went in November, so it was quite a bit cheaper than usual, but it was still, you know, that was probably, you know, several thousand dollar trip. This last year was maybe a bit more splurgy, though, because I turned 40 last fall, and we spent a month in the UK for that so that I could go to Shakespeare and Harry Potter sites. Oh, wow. And I spent my 40th birthday in Shakespeare's hometown, and actually the author Neil Gaiman showed up. I don't know who that is, but he sounds That's like a, a big deal. Some people will be into that. Uh, yeah. Others don't care. It's yeah. fine. Uh, but he showed up right there while we were sitting outside Shakespeare's birthplace. But that was, um, you know, the UK is not inexpensive, although we did benefit from a good exchange rate thanks to Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> so are you spending maybe like 10 grand a year on travel? No, travel's probably 10 to 15 total. Yeah. Our, our view is that Over if, two years? Uh, oh, no, a year. Over a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, although I do have a vast amount of travel points from when I was working before because I traveled a ton. So we use that to offset some of it. Uh, do you but, have a fly flat on the international? You know, I did when I got free upgrades, but we don't pay for that. Yeah. That's um, a bit absurd. Um, and especially because we travel together. I think when you travel solo, it's much worse to be on a long flight when you're with someone you can lean on. It's not so true, bad. True, true, true. So that helps a lot. But uh, travel was always our top priority. We paid off our house before we retired so that our, our basic cost of living is pretty affordable. What's the range of property value in your area? Uh, so I live in Lake Tahoe, California. So a basic starter home right now is probably in the $600,000 range. Uh, those are hard to find. They go very quickly. Yeah. Uh, they get bid up. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of billionaires, so we go up to, you know, 20, 30 million. Uh, those are obviously not the houses that I <laughs> look at, uh, but we have quite a range. It's, it, it goes up not as steeply as you'd expect, but there is a big premium on starter homes because there's not enough supply. So what was your, and I, again, we weren't going to go into the weeds and talk about your, um, I guess, exact type of financial figures. Uh, before we press record, you talked about that you've been fortunate. So mm -hmm. was that because, did you get an inheritance? Did you get a big bonus? Did you... Was your partner a really good income? Like, what was the the lucky prize or the fortunate thing that you got? The funny thing is, I, I think there is a lot of spinning financial narratives to sound a certain way. I could tell a very sad story of growing up 
this is all true, uh, with a single disabled parent on government assistance uh, and having all these disadvantages, that would be accurate, but it's not the whole story. The whole story is that I also had, you know, my dad who was disabled, who I lived with, valued education more than anything. He had gone to West Point, which is a, the military academy here in the States, really good school, really hard to get into. Uh, he would not let me have a job in high school because he said my job was school. So I got to be president of all the clubs and spent all my time on grades and test scores. And I got a full ride to a great university. And that's not like your typical story of, you know, single parent with government assistance. You know, normally it's like I would have worked all these jobs and that would have taken me away from school. And so uh, I started out at a pretty low income when I got out of college. I first earned about $29,000 a year. This is almost 20 years ago now mm. uh, in Washington, D.C., which is pretty expensive in the States. And uh, that, you know, if we just ended the story there, it would be like, wow, how'd you retire early? But the truth is my income climbed. Mm. You know, I, I side hustled all through my 20s. But then by the time I got to my 30s, I was earning a very good income. My, my husband and I both made six figures for the last, you know, roughly decade or so of our careers. And so when you combine two six-figure incomes, no children and no significant debt at that point. I had some debt when I was younger, but I had taken care of that. Um, the truth is it's very easy to save. And so I just yeah, don't so like, like when people say, wow, that's so amazing. I'm like, yeah, we yeah. had, it was easy though. Yeah. So if, you know, in Australia, I don't know, they call them dinks, mm -hmm. dual income, no kids. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like, sure. If you're both earning 100K, 150K with no kids. Yeah. Over 10 years, yeah. let's throw 100 grand in a portfolio every year. Like, pretty simple. Truly. And we had a couple other advantages, which is that my husband, uh, we both worked in politics. And when you work in politics, you tend to have a two-tier salary. So you, you make a certain amount and then you get a big chunk at the end of the year because that's when campaigns end and pay you. My salary, I got most of it in my regular paycheck and got a small bonus at the end of the year. Mark got a substantial bonus portion of his income at the end of the year. And once we got to a point where we were very comfortable with what we were living on, we just stopped planning to spend any of that money and we'd sock it totally away. Mm. And it's real easy to save when someone hands you a very big chunk of money that totally. you don't have plans for. And so if we hadn't had it structured that way, it would have been easier to spend that money every month. But we just happened to have jobs where that was easy. We also, I mean, the things that we did that were smart were these. We made a point of not inflating our lifestyles as our income went up, even though our friends and those around us did it. We lived in LA for a lot of that time in LA, as you've experienced is a very uh, money forward kind of place. You know, a lot of people have their wealth on display. It is a little funny to be driving around in a 15 year old compact economy car. You know, I what still, do you guys drive now? I still drive my 2004 Honda Civic yeah. and uh, we have a 2012 Subaru Outback. Love the Outback. We did buy both of them new, but we'll drive them forever. And so, uh, you know, having like saying I'm going to drive not a nice car in a city of very nice cars is a bit of intestinal yeah, it's fortitude. It's annoying because like I like cars yeah, and I've got two and it's just me because that's what I like. If and you just can't like everything. If you like right. cars and you want to spend on that, great. But then don't spend on clothes and electronics and travel and restaurants. And you have to pick things. So we cut down our restaurant spending. We banked all our raises. We banked all our bonuses. And we automated everything. So we never even saw the money. Because I'm a person where if I see money in my account, I feel like I have it to spend. If I don't see it, I don't miss it. That's, that's why I'm not a saver. I'm an investor. Because exactly. I, I invest and I don't like I couldn't even I don't even have any of my investment accounts on my phone mm -hmm. or the apps like I Same. Just, just shovel money. Yeah. And if it goes right on payday or it even comes straight out of your paycheck, 
you, you don't miss it. You don't have to have any willpower. We have a limited supply of willpower. Use mm-hmm. your willpower on the things you have to decide every day, like eating healthily, staying active, doing, taking care of yourself. Don't spend your willpower on your investing. Do you have a percentage that you give uh, in of terms your of, income? Of like charitable giving? Yes. Not a specific one. So we were always trying to give a lot when we were working. So uh, we were giving in the 5 to 10% range uh, of after tax. And then we set up a, um, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on it? A donor advised fund, a DAF. Do you have those in Australia? No. Are you familiar? No. So it's basically- I'm a bit daft on the DAF. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's essentially like a mini uh, charitable foundation. So we set aside a big chunk. You get the tax deduction at the time you put the money in there. But then you can't get that money back, but you control it and you can decide how to grant it out in perpetuity. And then if we die, we can give a beneficiary and then they can control it. Yeah. So it's almost like a foundation. Yeah. Yeah. So we still now can give charitably, even though we don't have the same level of income that we once had, but that was really important to us and something I really encourage people to do. Who do you give to? We give to a lot of different folks. Uh, primarily, I think we give to uh, climate change related organizations, land conservation organizations, and then those focused on poverty, like hunger, uh, housing homeless people, things like that. Yeah, sweet. Well, it's been a wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have no opinions on anything. No, tell me what you think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like, yeah, sure, I came out of the gate pretty hard on my views of fire, but I don't know, I just, it just all got to be like, You've just got to do things to your strength and set your life up so you've got control of your time. Which I totally agree with. And I think it's funny that you put me in the position of defending fire because I also think... Which is weird because I was going to be like, hang on, you told me you don't like fire. and yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually have a lot of issues with the movement. I think that it is in many cases, unintentionally misogynistic. There are these ideas, like there's kind of this ethos of the fire dude, and it's like a man working in tech who likes craft beer and likes doing, you know, woodworking with his hands. Mm. A lot of that is really inspired by Mr. Money Mustache. But if you're a woman, you like drinking wine and you like buying fountain pens, that's all frivolous. But like, just back to the point. When it's the same thing. Like if if there's a family in middle-class America that has a household income of 80K, mm-hmm. what you've done is probably not possible. Certainly not on our timeline, no. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's my overarching thing with like, with the fire movement. It's like, well, given that we can't save 80 grand a year because the timeline and the math doesn't add up. Like why bother at all? Yeah. Well, no, but it, it's more like, well, we can't do that. But what we can do is position our life so it is on our terms. So I couldn't I, agree more. So I don't hate Mondays anymore. And that's why, to me, it was so important to call the book work optional instead of retire by 40 or something yeah. like that because I think there are so many different versions of it and I think that the main narrative of FIRE is very all or nothing mm. instead of there are a million shades of gray in between. Yeah, and I think I think we've... We agree, but we're just looking at it from different angles, maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, like, because my co-host on my other podcast, John, like, you know, we're completely different in every way on the planet, which is what makes it a bit entertaining. You know, we often get to the same point where we, where we agree, but we've argued about the same thing for like the last 20 minutes. But I don't know. It's just a cool discussion. And I will end it on one last question. Mm-hmm. 
Why did you vote for Trump? <laughs> you know I did not vote for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where can we find you? Recap it. <laughs> The best place. She's a Trumper. We've got. She's even wearing a mega hat over here. This is wild. I could not be less of a Trump voter. <laughs> um, Don't you want to make America great again? It's oh funny. God, you guys it's so take politics. Yeah, I know. You guys take politics so much more seriously than we do, and that's why I just like triggering Americans. Yeah, fair enough. It's it's an we're easy targets that way. Mm. Um, the best place to find me online is ournextlife.com, which is my blog. There, I have links to all my socials. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find my book. You can find links to my podcast, The Fairer Sense, which is also in all the podcast places. You found it on Apple yeah, Podcasts yesterday. Uh, it's so it's Fairer Sense, C E N T S, and uh, yeah, love it. All right, is America already great though? I think America is great in some ways and truly terrible in other ways. But yeah. I think that the Trumper folks, their vision of great is very different from my vision of great. And they really not, mean we're white. Not live, we're, we're not living in the 50s anymore. You can't recreate the steelworks motor car industry in the Midwest anymore. Like, it's just different, right? It is, and it also totally ignores the racial dynamics. It's mm. like, let's get it back to the 50s for the middle class and up white people of that time and not the whole country it's ignoring we had segregation then based on race we had i mean just yeah mm. we we need to be moving in a different direction than that yeah totally well we'll <laughs> i'd like to do a, <laughs> i'd just like to do an episode with you and just keep scratching and see what comes out but uh thanks so much tanya it's thanks for having fun. me all right bye bye When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 